This is Pastor Matthew Castro at Central Church. I'm the adult ministries pastor, and you are listening to Attributes of God with Dr. Jim Ullman. It doesn't mean that we're through the attributes of God. Uh, it's We're simply getting toward the end of the list that I know about. So uh, there are things that we could say and, and uh, so on, but um, I do intend or expect to complete the study by the end of classes in December. So we'll uh, work toward that end and then make another plan for next fall, next spring. Uh, but uh, right now we're talking about the righteousness and justice of God. And part of the reason for putting these two together is that the biblical terminology doesn't separate them. Um, so what in one text is translated just is in another text translated righteous. And so it, it's a matter of what fits in the context best for English, but the, the language is pretty much the same. There is a Hebrew word that is um, regularly translated justice. <clears throat> um, it, is, it is a word that's used with reference to God in some ways, but it's not so much an attribute of God as what God has set out as what is right and, and appropriate in a given circumstance. So you can talk in the Hebrew language about, uh, the word is, by the way, mishpat, M-I-S-H-P-A-T, mishpat of the priests. That The mishpat of the priests is what in the sacrifice belongs to the priest. So in an animal sacrifice other than a burnt offering, uh, even in a burnt offering, uh, the hide is the mishpat of the priest. It is what is due to the priest. So mishpat is what is due to someone in that regard. So it would not be precisely an attribute of God, uh, though it could be applied to God in a variety of ways. So we're looking at the terminology in the Old and New Testaments for the righteousness or justice of God. And both terms, both the Hebrew term and the Greek term are translated sometimes righteousness, sometimes justice. And so we'll just work with that. The Logos survey of theology defines righteousness as God's character specifically in regard to the coherence between his revealed will and his actions on behalf of his people. And that's a crucial insight. We will, toward the end of our study tonight, we will see passages where God is, is righteous and just in dealing with Israel by delivering them from their own sin. Uh, that is, blessing them even in the midst of their sin. That's amazing to me. We'll have to talk about in what sense uh, can we call God righteous for doing that. Um, in the Bible sense lexicon in Logos, the idea is categorized under morality. That just doesn't fit well with the Old Testament or the New Testament terminology. I, I put this on the screen in order to alert you to the fact that righteousness is sometimes related to morality, but sometimes it's not. It, it's simply not in a category of morality at all. And so you have to think about what does it mean to talk about someone or something as being righteous. Uh, in the New Testament... Uh, people who do not obey but believe are righteous. Yes? Yes? 
Um, that would suggest that righteousness in the New Testament, at least, doesn't have the category primarily of obedience. Though, for most of us growing up, righteousness has always been equated, equated with obedience. Yes or no? Yeah? God declares sinners righteous. Is he declaring them obedient? Why not? Because they're not. It would be a lie if calling them righteous meant calling them obedient. Do you follow this? And God can't lie. So in some ways, we're going to have to start rethinking what righteousness is. And that's part of what we're doing tonight is working out some basic ideas of what righteousness is. The biblical terms, you don't care about the, the, Greek, the Greek and Hebrew. I understand that, but I don't know how to teach without this stuff. So uh, the one word for righteousness is tzedakah. In, uh, if you have any Jewish friends, uh, do you, does, does anyone in the group have some Jewish friends, observant Jews? They will at Passover or at Feast of, uh, uh, Feast of Tabernacles have a, a tzedakah box. box. Um, the word tzedakah is a word that's used in the Old Testament regularly to deal with behavior that usually by implication accords with some standard. Uh, but a tzedakah box today is uh, a charity box. That's what you put money in for charitable purposes, charitable gifts. And so it's changed the meaning substantially in that regard. The word yashar, there, there's, there's quite a bit, by the way, let me stay with tzedakah for just a minute. There's quite a lot of vocabulary that's associated with this. I've just given you the one. Uh, there's another word in the Hebrew that's translated to be righteous, and it's yashar. Uh, yashar in a non-theological sense, means straight, proper, fit, or just. So it's a, a, rope, a, a road that is straight is a yashar road. <laughs> it's not obedient, but it's straight. It, 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 fits a, it fits a standard of straightness in that regard. And then in the New Testament, the primary term for righteousness is dikaiosune. And this is the word that's in, in the verb form is used for justification. So God can declare people righteous who are not obedient. Yes? Hold on to that, because that's going to be crucial. We're going to have to start thinking about what righteousness is in the New Testament. I'm going to be thinking primarily about uh, righteousness as it's applied to God, and not talking about the, the broader usage of the word. So let me do that just a moment now. What is God doing when he declares sinful people righteous? What is he saying? They have a right standing. Yes. Uh, the way I've, I've said it in, in past, right standing is perfectly acceptable. Uh, another way of saying it is right relationship. Um, uh, faith is right relationship with God. That struck me like a thunderbolt one day. I hadn't ever thought that thought before. <laughs> uh, our faith is counted as righteousness. It's not just kind of an imitation of righteousness that God accepts. It is righteousness is right relationship with God. 
And the only right relationship with God that there is biblically is faith. Yes, are, are you with me here? We've talked in, in various studies, uh, we've talked a lot about faith, and I think you may be weary of hearing about it. Uh, I'm trying to decide what to do in the spring, and when one of the things I'm thinking about doing is talking about faith. But for this group, that probably won't work because we spent so much time in Genesis through Deuteronomy, and you heard this faith thing over and over and over, so I, I may not impose that upon you. I may do it on some other group, but... Uh, in any case, uh, righteousness in the New Testament primarily does not refer to behavior patterns. It, it refers to a right relationship with God, and the, def the, the definition of right relationship with God is that it is a faith relationship. Um, our overview, however, can mislead. Genesis 38 Judah and Tamar, you remember the story? Uh, are there children in the group? Okay. I am. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. Ethan's the closest thing to a child in the group. Um, Tamar, uh, Judah and Tamar, Judah gave Tamar his first son. Uh, he was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord took him. He gave him his second son, and... He was evil, so the Lord killed him too. And, and Judah figured, give two boys to the same woman, they both die. Where's the problem? Obviously the woman. <laughs> so so uh, he held back the third son. She saw that, that the, the youngest son had come to adulthood and yet was not, he, he was, she was not given to him as a husband as she should be, according to the entire culture. So she <laughs> concocted a plan to, uh, to act as a prostitute and uh, bring Judah in. He did. He, uh, and, and it's not just a prostitute. It's a, a holy prostitute. One of the words that's used for her to describe her is Kadeshah, which means a holy woman. She's a priestess of Canaanite religion, which is a fertility religion. Can you imagine what the rituals were like? Okay, do I need to say more? Okay. Yeah, are, well, X-rated. Uh, um, uh, so, so he turned aside, and she, boy, Judah is dense. Oh, dear me. <laughs> Uh, she said, what are you going to give me as a surety when, when, for when you send me the kid after the shearing? And uh, I, I, he said, what shall I give you? And she said, your staff, your cord, and your signet ring. What is, what is the significance of a signet ring? Effectively, that's power of attorney. He can, she can do anything. Judah is not the sharpest knife in the drawer. You're going to give a prostitute your signet ring? That makes no sense whatsoever. He's a little slow on the take, up, uptake. Are you with me here? She comes to be pregnant. He finds out about it. 
she should die. Bring her out here and let's burn her to, uh, burn her to death. And she sends him the, the staff and the cord and the cigarette. I'm, I'm pregnant by the man to whom these belong. Look at them and see if you know, if you recognize them. And his response is, she is more righteous than I. Prostitution, idolatry, uh, incest. Uh, you could probably add more. And she is more righteous than I because she is more faithful to the family than the head of the family is. And family loyalty is one of the chief virtues that the Old Testament teaches and the New, by the way. Uh, it, just, it just changes what the family group is that we, we must be loyal to. She is more righteous than I. She has done what is necessary to maintain the integrity of the family. If if Judah does not marry her off, um, God might have taken Judah's life and Shelah's life, and then the, both of, then the, the whole tribe of Judah would have been gone. And that would have been a, a, a disaster for the whole human race. Yes? So righteousness in Tamar's situation is clearly not obedience, but it is acting in right relationship. Do you follow this? That, that's not, not what your preacher told you when you were in, in Sunday school. Yeah, vacation Bible school, that's not what they said. But that's Bible. Righteousness is right relationship. So let's look at it here, Deuteronomy 32. And, and all I'm going to do is what we've done in the last couple of weeks is just look through verse after verse and see what the scriptures say about these things. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is, is he. Is God obedient? Doesn't have to be. Well, it's, it's even more strong than that. Okay. I would say he cannot be. Why can't God be obedient? Yeah. Say, say that again. It implies, subordination. it implies subordination. He is subordinate to no one. So obedience cannot be a category applicable to God in terms of righteousness and even as we shall see in justice. Um, God is righteous. This is Deuteronomy 32. Would you turn there just a minute? Deuteronomy 32 is an important chapter in the book. Um, J. Vernon McGee used to say, we're going to turn to Deuteronomy 32 today. This is my favorite passage in the scriptures. Tomorrow we'll be in Deuteronomy 32, and then that will be my favorite passage. <laughs> but this is an important passage this is the song of Moses that he is to teach Israel. Uh, so in, in Deuteronomy 32, let's pick it up at verse 1. Uh, Give ear, O heavens, uh, and I will speak and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as, as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, 
ascribe greatness to, to our God. Now, what he's going to do is proclaim the name of our Lord, of the, of, of the Lord. Yes? He's not going to stand up and yell, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. He's going to tell you what the name of Yahweh means. So verse 4, the rock. So here's proclamation of the name of the Lord. The rock. Why does he call him the rock? He's not in any um, adventure movies. <laughs> yes? So what does it mean that he's the rock? He's a solid foundation, yes. More, more important than that. He is a place where you can build a fortress and know you'll be safe. Um, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. All his ways? Is it true that all his ways are justice? Well, we have to say yes to that because it's scripture. So when my friend, whom I've mentioned a few times in the recent weeks, when his grandson committed suicide, was the way of God just in that? It, the answer has to be yes. It, 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 is, it is a good thing that my, my dear friend uh, he's probably the longest lasting friend I've had and I've known him since 1975 or so um, we're going on 50 years in our relationship um, it's a good thing that he knows the Lord and he knows him well and he trusts him yes but you know in the average family's life you begin to doubt the, the goodness of God the, the justice of God Yes? Is that true? He and his wife have suffered with, for 30 years with a son who uh, was addicted to drugs and on the street most of the time. Was God just in that? I can't explain why that's true, but it is true. God, yes, God is just, God is just in all his ways. Um, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. They have dealt correctly with, uh, uh, with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and a twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people, is, it, is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? Um, verse 26 in chapter 32. God is speaking here, or Moses is speaking in the person of God here. I would have said I would cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory had I not feared the provocation of the enemies, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord who did all this. So God's righteousness entails not only maintaining us in relationship with himself, 
but maintaining us because his reputation would be sullied if he lost any one of us. And God will never allow his reputation to be misunderstood. Not permanently. So the righteousness of God, um, he carries out justice against the wicked, verse 5. But justice is the distinguishing quality of all that he does. So in justice, brothers and sisters, God saves sinners. In justice, he allows the wicked to flourish. Yes? 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 So evidently, justice and righteousness aren't the things that we thought they were. But God will, in righteousness, God will never violate his character. And by extension, we can, can equally say he will never violate his word. It will look like he's acting contrary to his character. And that may go on so long that we wonder, where are the promises of God? Have you read the prophets? Where is the promise of his coming? The prophets quote Israel as saying. Yes? So sometimes God delays so long that it gives wicked people the opportunity to speak blasphemy, but God is still being righteous. And so we must say, learn to say, never doubt in the darkness what you learned in the light. Um, Job 8, verse 3. These are not in any particular order. Job 8, verse 3. Um, does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? Now, you might say, well, this is Bildad who's talking. And so, uh, Bildad, do, do you remember Job 42 and God's assessment of the, of the discussion the three friends had with Job? Move your heads. Yeah, all right. You have not said what of me what is right as my servant Job has. But I want to point out to you, if, you're, if you study Job sometime in the future, not everything Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar say is wrong, and not everything Job says is right. Because Job attributes injustice to God. The only reason he, the, the only thing he uses his, his, his wisdom and his power, Job 10, the only thing God uses his wisdom and power to do is, is to uh, destroy those who trust in him. So not everything Job says is right. Not everything the friends say is wrong. So when Bildad says, and I'm, I'm not happy with Bildad either, and God certainly isn't happy with Bildad, but does God pervert justice? No. Uh, or does the Almighty pervert the right? And the answer is no. Um, of a truth God will not do wickedly, 34.12 says. The Almighty will not pervert justice. Turn, turn to Job 34, just 
we won't read anything here. This is, this is Elihu speaking. What is your opinion of Elihu? Hmm? He's not really a child, but he's a young man. He's, he's really not. He sums up what the friends have said and what Job has said and prepares the way for what God's going to say. He's the bridge between the dialogues with the friends and the monologues from the Lord. Right? He really is. Um, Elihu, of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. That's truth. Are you with me? Right? Ezra 9.15, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. You know, I assume you know the, the historical background of Ezra. Ezra is the second return from Babylonian captivity, about 457 B.C. 450, I forgot the, 444. Uh, about 444 B.C. He's come back, brought a, a, a number of folk back with him uh, to uh, try to reestablish re the teaching of the law of God in Israel, uh, in the land. And here they are, a, a pitiful group of folk. Uh, the city of Jerusalem, by the way, the city of Jerusalem lay in ruins long after the days of, Isaac, of Ezra and Nehemiah. It lay in ruins. The, the, quite a little archaeology has been done. Uh, the only significant building in Jerusalem uh, after the return from Babylonian captivity didn't occur until the 3rd century B.C. And Ezra's in the 5th century B.C. Uh, Nehemiah comes a little bit later than Ezra, and he rebuilds the, the, the walls of the, of, the, of the city. So all you've got in the city in the days of Ezra is the temple and very few people who live in the city. They actually had to hold a draft lottery to see who would move into the city. And, and once, once the lottery had been fulfilled, all the folks who weren't chosen congratulated the people who were going to move in. I think I know what that means, uh, having been on the, uh, that, the other end of a draft lottery at one point. But the, the, the oy vey, um, we didn't lose any batteries, that's good. Um, the point I'm trying to make, folks, is that Israel is a tiny, it, is something wrong with the sound? I did, okay. Um, there, is that better? All right. Um, in the days of Ezra, they really are without defense. Yes? They are in trouble. Even in the land of Canaan, they're in trouble. 1 Kings 3.28. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. This is 1 Kings 3. Who's on the throne in 1 Kings 3? 
Yeah. Somebody said something. Solomon is on the throne in 1 Kings 3. All Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. This is the, these are the two prostitutes that were, were vying for a baby that remained. And they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. We talked about wisdom a couple of weeks ago. Uh, doing righteousness, doing justice is the work of wisdom. So, uh, folks, when, when we're talking about these attributes, uh, we're talking about ways that the Bible describes God but we're not talking about something that's, that's different from another attribute in God. They're all intertwined. God is not made up of parts, so every attribute is simply a statement of what, how God acts or how God relates in, in given situations. Am I making sense? No, yes, move your heads, right? But when you confront God, you will, you will see, and I don't know what I'm saying just now. I don't understand the words, but I think they're true. Uh, when we stand before God, we will, we will see him uh, in the brilliance of his, of his being. Turn to Ezekiel 1 for just a moment here. Ezekiel has this marvelous passage describing the chariot throne of God in Ezekiel 1. And it goes on and on and on. Um, in Oh, that's Lamentations. <laughs> All right. Um, it starts in verse 4, and it goes through... To verse 27. We won't read all of that. But let me just get a start on it. Verse 4, as I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually in the midst of the fire. It was, a, it, 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 as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And he starts to describe all this stuff. Um, verse 22 over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out over their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward the other, and so on. Um, verse 26, above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne. Mind you, he only now has gotten to the point where he's describing something that's directly related with God. Up to this point, it's, it's been virtually indescribable. And I will show you that. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness of a human appearance. And upward from what had, had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal like the appearance of fire and closed all around and downward from that, from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire and there was brightness around him. Now look at verse 28. 
All, all he can do is say what it's like. He can't say what it is. Sometime, if you go through this passage, mark all the words like as appeared the appearance of, this is called a simile. All Ezekiel can do is ransack his language for expressions that will, that will give us some idea of it. But look at verse 26, or 28. I'm sorry, 28, yes. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the, on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such, and here it is, this is what I want you to see. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. He can't describe the glory of the Lord. He can't even describe the likeness of the glory of the Lord. He can only describe the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. This is what we will see. And when we see it, then we will know everything that we've been talking about is all there at once. And it will overwhelm us. And it will drive us. It, do spirits have... Do, do resurrection bodies have knees? Apparently, because <laughs> the the uh, four living creatures, I'm sorry, the 24 elders are always on their knees before the Lord. Yes. Um, so all we will be, be able to do is, is to bow before him in utter amazement at the glory of this person. So Israel heard the wisdom that does justice. Yes, they're all interrelated. His grace is just grace. If we have time before Christmas, we'll talk about grace, but we spent so much time talking about Romans that you may have heard all what you want to hear about grace for a while. But uh, we, we, we do such a poor job of defining it as unmerited favor. That, that, that's only part of it. We are not simply lacking in merit. We have, before God, infinite demerit. And his grace is his favor shown to people who have infinite demerit. Because one with infinite merit has paid the penalty for our sins and has given us his status with the Father. Astonishing stuff. Uh, Psalm 7:11. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. This is our common thought about God's righteousness and justice, but there is more. Um, have you never, after, after you came to know the Lord, have you never committed a sin and think and thought, I know God forgives sin, but I don't see how he can forgive that. Um, and this is because we have this concept of righteous judge. He is a righteous judge. There, there's no question about it. But his righteousness is not all anger. It's not all wrath. It's all, not all penalty, condemnation. His, his righteousness is saving. 
So, Psalm 36, 6, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. This Psalm 36, I, I think I know what it's about. Let me see, <laughs> just to make sure. Uh, Psalm 36, 6. Um, this is a Psalm of David. Um, I want you to see the preceding verse. Verse 5, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the, crowd, to the clouds, your righteousness is like the mountains of God, your judgments are like a great deep, man and beast you save, O Lord. God in his righteousness and justice saves man and beast, which is interesting. Wonder if there are elect beasts, but we'll leave that to another discussion. Um, Psalm 51 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. You know, Psalm 51, the opening of the psalm relates it to the time when, um, oh, who was the prophet? Nathan went into him when he had gone into Bathsheba. And there's a, there's a pun there in Hebrew. Uh, and David is dry spiritually as dust. Nathan tells him the parable. You know the story. Nathan tells him the parable. And Nathan, uh, David, being a shepherd... You see, you always pick for a parable, you pick something that's going to make the other guy itch. <laughs> so David knows what it is to love a sheep. Yes? So he tells the parable of the, of the rich man and the poor man and the, and the poor man's sheep. David pronounces his own judgment. The man who has done this ought to die. I, shall rep- I forget how he continued from that point. Um, but God didn't send Nathan to David to condemn him. He sent him to reclaim him. Yeah, you are the man. I took you from the sheepfolds to shepherd my people Israel and so on. And David's response is, wait, I got to go write Psalm 51. So he ran and wrote Psalm 51. Then he came back and he said, okay, what's next? No. What was David's response? I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You will not die. Psalm 51 is not written in the middle of that event. Psalm 51 is written after the event. It's an instruction for sinners. Look, folks, if God can forgive a king of injustice, of abuse of power, of rape. I notice that not one word of reproach is ever attached to Bathsheba's name. Not one word of reproach. When When the king invites you, how many options do you have? And when you're left alone by all the servants and the king approaches you, how many options do you have? Zero. 
So not one word of reproach is ever attached to the name of Bathsheba. In fact, she's rewarded for her part in that event because it's her son who becomes the heir of David. Yes? It's an interesting family. Uh, David's two older sons carry out the lifestyle of David. Um, But when David responded... I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan immediately pronounced forgiveness. So if God can forgive a a guy like that, what sin can he not forgive? Why did he forgive it? Yeah. And also because he has a plan for the house of David that if he doesn't forgive, that plan is is completely ruined. Yes? So David becomes the classic example of the person who's described in Psalm 51. He is the test case. Can God forgive such sins? Yes. Why? Because God is righteous. And God's forgiving forgiving David's sins is his righteousness. That's not obedience, folks. Are you with me? Psalm 65, verse 5. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness. <laughs> Lord, we want you to act righteously for America. Uh, now, America as a nation has no relationship with God. It's, it's, it's as wicked as all the other nations. Um, and it's not just in the last 40 years that it's become this way, or 50 years or 60 years. We've always been this way, folks. We never have been God's chosen people. Um, But if we ask God in righteousness to deal with America, maybe he will send revival. Maybe he will send judgment. Both will be righteous. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness. O God of our salvation, the hope of all the earth, of the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, God, who is righteous, is the hope of America. That's the only hope we have. Psalm 116, verse 5. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Gracious and righteous? How can he be gracious and righteous? (laughs) Because he's God. And the attributes are not parts of God. They all interpenetrate one another. It's like a good solution. It's fully, it's fully dissolved. Everything is fully dissolved within the, the element that it's, it's placed. Yes? It's fully dissolved and has fully been taken up in the whole part of the, of the uh, liquid. The attributes are not this part and that part and another part of God. God acts in righteousness today and grace tomorrow. No, when he acts in righteousness, he acts in grace. And when he acts in grace, he ra- acts in righteousness. And when he judges, he acts in righteousness. 
Um, so gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. Have you ever associated the mercy of God with righteousness and God? Um, Isaiah 45, 21. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Isaiah 45 is part of a court case that God has convened to see if the claims of the nations to their God's deity can be, can be given any evidence. It starts in Isaiah 41 and it ends in 47 or 48. Uh, 48 is kind of the entailment of the, of the court scene, but it's not precisely the court scene. Uh, and he, he says, look, you gods, do something. Make it high as heaven or low as, the, as Sheol. Do something. Show us that you're gods. Tell us about your plans. And the gods don't have any plans. Um, the gods are fickle. One fundamental uh, characteristic of all polytheism is that the gods are, are always worse than the best of men. Humans, the best of humans are always better than the, than the best of the gods. Are you with me here? So uh, the, uh, Virgil's Aeneid, uh, Pius Aeneas, is a constant reference to, to, to Aeneas. Can you guess what Pius means? Pius. He's a very godly man, but the gods are just fickle, and Hera, not, well, she's not in, in Greek, that's Greek, this is Latin, um, uh, who is Jove's, uh, Jupiter's wife, I can't think, somebody help me here, I can't think of her name now, um, but, but she is so angry, and, and uh, Virgil, in the opening lines of the Aeneid, says, is such anger fitting for the gods? And yet, it was quite conceivable because they had known what the gods do. Folks, the gods are not faithful. But our God is. And Juno. Juno, thank you. Yeah, that didn't sound right to me. I thought of that, but I thought, no, that can't be right. Juno. Um, so he's, he's asking them, here in the middle of this law court, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told of this long ago? Do you have anything that you said you would do long ago that now you're doing? <clears throat> and the answer is no, because they're fickle. They change their minds. They're, they are untrustworthy. Uh, was it not I, the Lord, who said this? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. He's writing this about a time when Israel is in Babylonian captivity. He's writing this before they go into captivity. That's all the more important because they have this testimony from Isaiah. Isaiah is an 8th century B.C. prophet. They don't go into, into captivity in Jerusalem until the 6th century B.C. He's late 8th century there, early 
uh, 6th when they go into captivity. And they have the testimony of Isaiah that they will take with them. And when they read Isaiah, who declared this long ago? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. Wasn't the Babylonian captivity a terrible disaster for Jerusalem? Yeah, it was. But you know what God says to Jeremiah? The people back in Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day, Jeremiah's uh, an 8th century prophet too. He's, he's, he's dealing with the time of the Assyrian captivity in 722 B.C., and Jeremiah, uh, in fact, they've already been taken captive to, to uh, Assyria. And Jeremiah writes a letter at, at the Lord's direction to the people in Assyria. And he says to them, uh, oh, there's an amber alert someplace, I guess. Um, uh, he, said, he said to them, the folks in Jerusalem think you're the bad guys. You're not the bad guys. You're the good ones. You're the ones that God has preserved for a future. The folks who are left here are all going to die. So Assyrian captivity was actually God's way of getting the folks he wants to survive out of the place where destruction is going to be. Isaiah 63, 1-6. Um, who is this who comes from Edom and crimson Garments from Basra, he who is splendid in this apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his, like, uh, his who treads the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my, and, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. This... He did in righteousness. He judges nations for the sake of his people, even for the sake of his sinful people, Israel. Yes? Isaiah 46, 12 and 13. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. Here he's addressing, notice this is Isaiah 46, it's still in the courtroom. Yes, that we mentioned Isaiah 45, we're still in the court case. God is saying to Israel, listen to me, you stubborn hearted, you who are far from righteousness. I'm bringing my righteousness near, it's not far off and my salvation will not delay. So what is the righteousness of God? Why would God, in righteousness, save sinful Israel? 
because of his promise to Abraham. I got that right. You got that right. All right. You get a gold star for tonight. <laughs> he, has, he has made promises that if he judges Israel as their sin deserves, his promises must fail, and his promises cannot fail. He, he must not allow them to fail. The only reason a, a, a plan can fail, we've talked about this before, is for lack of uh, wisdom in making a plan, lack of power, ability to carry it out, lack of willingness to carry it out, uh, lack of ability to control the circumstances that will allow you to carry it out. Yes? Is anything that like of that true of God? Does he lack any of those things? Then no plan of his can fail. That, that is uh, another attribute of God. He's a compassionate. Yeah, yeah, and we're going to talk about mercy in a couple of weeks. Lord willing. So I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. This is the righteousness of God for Israel in Babylonian captivity. Isaiah is writing ahead of time, a century and more ahead of time. This passage, Isaiah 40 to 40, or 41 to 47, um, so that Israel will know they're not abandoned. There's still hope. But what about righteousness in the New Testament? The New Testament language is, is different, of course. It's, it's Greek. There, there's the word dikaiosune that we mentioned a while ago and its related terms, fairness, justice, equitable, equitableness. I, that was in the dictionary, so I took it. <laughs> fairness. Juridical correctness with focus on redemptive action. When God acts in justice... He acts judicially to, re to redeem. Um, the quality or characteristic of upright behavior, uprightness, righteousness. The gospel is the revelation of God's righteousness. Romans There in a minute. I'm almost there. Romans 1 17. Um, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, Greek scholars want, want to explain every grammatical expression that they can. And one of these here is this righteousness of God. Is this the righteousness that characterizes God? Or is it the righteousness that God gives? Or is, the, is, is this the righteousness that God does? And I think one of the problems of our exegesis courses at seminaries is that we want students to be precise. And I'm pretty sure because Paul uses righteousness in so many different ways in the book of Romans, I'm pretty sure that he hadn't pinned it down that tightly. It's all the above. God sends Jesus in righteousness and in righteousness plans for him to go to the cross and in righteousness 
plans for him to bear the iniquity of us all. Would you do that with your son? So how is God righteous in doing this? Well, in part, it's what we said in Genesis months and months ago now. Um, God made a plan. And that was for the human race to rule the world. And human sin has now turned that rule into tyranny. Yes? So if God's got a plan for the human race to rule the world, then he's got to do something about that. And the only, apparently, uh, do you think God ever did anything that was without reason, without good um, thought behind it, without proper thought, purpose? Do you think God ever did anything like that? Well, that's, that's what I'm talking about. In fact, is without purpose or without proper thought. No, God didn't ever do that, except maybe camels. Camels. Uh, camels, camels are the Baptist animals because they look like they were put together by a committee. Things have been getting a little heavy. I thought maybe we ought to lighten it up a little bit here. Uh, the... Um, no, God never did anything without a purpose. So, folks, the purpose of God in this creation has to be fulfilled. That is, that his purpose for the human race, we must rule this world. We must. We must. And God must bring about the conditions that will make it possible for us to rule this world. Um. But one of those conditions was dealing with the sin that enables God to show grace in this world. Otherwise, we would never know what grace was. Hmm? So now we are learning what grace is. We're learning it slowly, unfortunately. Because um, when we sing Amazing Grace we can get through it without crying. <laughs> uh, so, God in righteousness has done all these things. Uh, Romans 1.17. Um, this is a quotation from somebody whose name is, is now, not now available. The apostle passes to an explanation of his statement that the gospel means salvation for those who receive it by faith. The reason given is that this salvation discloses, literally, the righteousness of God. Paul depends on the Old Testament for his language, Isaiah 46, 12, and 13, that we just looked at a little bit ago, Isaiah 61, 10. Note how in these verses just mentioned, righteousness and salvation are nearly equivalent terms. Behold, I bring my righteousness near, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. You remember this? Uh, in, Hebrew, the in the Hebrew tradition, early and late, God's righteousness is the way he acts. And the apostle, um, oh, 
his, his, no, this is the way he acts in maintaining covenant. Folks. Oy vey. This, uh, this is problematic. Um, I flail too much around here to have these, all these wires <laughs> around me. But, uh, um, folks, God made promises. He made a plan. The most important thing is God has a plan. And he stated his plan in Genesis 1 that the human race would, would live under his blessing, fill the earth, and subdue it. Yes? But, but his rule is a rule of service then our rule would be the same. It would be a rule of service, not a rule of tyranny, but a rule of service. Um, this is what our government has forgotten. They're in, gov in, in public service. Yes? No. Well, that's, well, that's what they say, and that's, what we, that's the way it was envisioned. It was never envisioned that someone would go to Congress and be in, the, be in Congress for 20 and 30 years. It was envisioned that they'd go back home and work, so they'd have to go back home and live under the laws they, they made. Um, it has become then a, 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 a rule of self-service, but not public service. But the rule that God intended the human race to have is a rule of service to all the earth. Uh, what would this world have been like if we had actually been serving instead of tyrannizing? Um, my guide in Israel, the first four of the five, first five trips I went to Israel, said uh, the Arabs are called the fathers of the desert, and they're the fathers of the desert in, in more than one way. He said where they go, they ruin the pasturage and it turns into a desert. Uh, so it, it's, it's problematic. We, we ruin what we touch. A key passage on righteousness, though it's not a passage about God's, uh, God's attribute, is Romans 3.21 and 22. Romans 3.21. Um, oh, goodness me. Um, you know, I have a statement. Yeah. Yeah, it really is not. And if it was service, they were But it still wasn't made to be a father. That's what fathers are for. So, Romans 3.21, but now a without law righteousness is revealed, being testified by the law and the prophets a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ uh, to all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely, declared righteous freely. That word in, in Greek and is, is similar to a word in Hebrew, um, which, is, which is used in Job 1 and 2 in both places where it means without paying for it. So we're justified freely, declared righteous without paying for it. Um, uh, by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Um, let me make a Captain Obvious, obvious statement. 
Righteousness means obedience. If that is the primary meaning of the word throughout the Bible, then what or who is God obedient to? And what obedience is required of us for salvation, for justification? In fact, Paul labors to show that obedience is actually, that, that making our acceptance with God dependent upon our, relate, our obedience is actually detrimental to us spiritually. We live by faith, folks. Have you ever noticed um, that when you spend a lot of time with another person, you start doing things like that person does? Jerry and Lynn are laughing. <laughs> uh, my daughter had a really good ear for music. Uh, she never did do anything with music, but uh, uh, she had a really good ear for music. And the reason I know that is her best friend in high school was from Pakistan. She was raised in the United States, so she had a fully American accent, but there were Pakistani accents. Grace notes, if you will, in her speech. And every time Jill would come home from spending time with Bina, she sounded like Bina. <coughs> then she started dating a guy named Stacy, who was from Corinth, Mississippi. Bless his heart. Bless his heart. <laughs> and every time she'd come home from being around Stacy, she sounded just like Stacy. Your relationships affect you. Uh, not just in the way you talk, but in, in your behavior patterns. Folks, we're related to our Father. And as I live by faith, he produces his righteousness in me. Are you with me here? So why are all the commandments there in the epistles? Well, folks, we're, we, we're not born again as fully grown adults spiritual people. We're born again as, as babies. Yes? Uh, when I came to you, Paul says in, to the Corinthians, I couldn't speak to you as to, as to mature, but as to, as to uh, immature, as to infants in Christ. And that's the word he uses in Greek, is, is infants in Christ. Indeed, he said, I still can't talk to you because you have become dull in hearing. They have quit um, fostering their relationship with God through faith. And they're just trying to do things the way they would do them as Corinthians. Yes, sir. Going back time again, but you talk about the obedience, you know, like Bob said, uh, to be obedient, someone is to be subordinate. Mm -hmm. uh, God therefore has no subordination yeah. to be obedient. Yeah. However, Jesus. Mm -hmm. is yes, yes, he is. And it's one of those arguments I've seen uh, Muslims make that say Jesus was not mm -hmm. uh, yeah. uh, a God. Yeah. Was a well, as the word, he cannot obey, but as the, as the son, he can. And so he has, um, I don't know whether you know this or not, but uh, I'm a father. And I'm also a son. Yes? And I'm also a husband. Now, how can that be? I'm only one person. 
but I have three different kinds of relationships. And that's what's going on with Jesus. So the, the, the point I'm trying to press home upon us is, folks, the obedience is the effect of our relationship. It is not the nature of our relationship. The nature of our relationship, the nature of our righteousness, is the kind of, na- kind of righteousness God has. That is, he is a faithful person. He is faithful to himself, which is most important to us. He is faithful to his word and is faithful to his people. Then we must be faithful people too because that's what it means to live by faith. You live faithfully. You're faithful to, the, to our Father. You're faithful to your brothers and sisters in Christ. What would that do to, to a lot of church conflict? If we just taught, this, this is not about getting everything right. This is about living in a faith relationship with one another, that we're faithful to the Lord and faithful to each other. And we will stand by each other, no matter the cost. That's what it's going to cost us in our faith relationship with God, whatever it costs. Romans 3.21, we've already looked at these. Philippians 3.19, a key idea in Romans 9, but Romans 3 is that righteousness is not specifically obedience. If it were, then Paul could not contrast uh, it with the righteousness of the law. Uh, so Philippians 3.9, righteousness is right relationship with God, and God acts in righteousness toward us, not doing all the right things, but doing everything that's necessary to maintain us in that relationship. God's righteousness in these verses is also fulfilling his promises to his son. Jesus said in John 10, other sheep I have that are not of this fold. These also I must bring and they will listen to my voice. So so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Why does he use the word must? These also I must bring. Absolute. Hmm? Absolute. Yeah. Say again. No, he's going to bring. He has uh, the other other sheep I have that are not of this fold. Not they're Gentiles, not Jews. These also I must bring. So he's not keeping any law here. Why must he bring Gentiles? Yeah. So, so getting right to the heart of the issue, it's God's plan. Do you follow? He he's obligated to fulfill God's plan. So he must bring them, not because there's a rule. I, Father, I I didn't really want to say those folks over there in Memphis, Tennessee, but. I guess I have to. It's not that there's a rule that he has to obey and he's, he's struggling with it. It's that he's, he's following the plan of his father. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.5. Suffering is part of, our, of all this. 2 
2 Thessalonians 1.4 talks about the things that the Thessalonians are suffering. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. God in righteousness brings suffering into our lives to prepare us for um, the kingdom of God. Um, I'm a Sooner fan, and I really enjoyed the Red River shootout two weeks ago. That was a good day for, for Oklahoma Sooners. I'm sorry, brother. I, I, yeah, yeah. It was, we had our pain last year. You got yours this year. Uh, the, the point is uh, here that um, I used to pray in the, in the OU stadium for, for OU to get a touchdown. And I'd, I'd say hallelujah when they'd get a touchdown. And I, finally, I, one day I realized what hallelujah means. Praise, praise Yahweh. And I thought, well, maybe I ought not to use that that way. And maybe get Oklahoma getting a touchdown isn't that important. It sure would mean a lot to me, Lord, but, you know, I've forgotten all those touchdowns. Just a few of them I remember. Um, but the things that God has planned for us are so great that it outweighs even a national championship in the NCAAs or the NFL or the NBA. It outweighs all of that. And you know that. I'm not telling you anything. I'm not, I'm not, I don't think you think this way. But I want you to realize that all the glorious things that you can dream of in your life are not as great as having a part in the kingdom of God. And that if it costs Jesus this to get us there, then what, what is God going to withhold from us to get us there like Jesus? Um, our whole salvation is the product of the righteousness of God. Second Peter 1.1, 1, 1, he writes this letter to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And notice that he puts God and Savior as titles for Jesus. Uh, so we have obtained faith because of the righteousness of God. Uh, uh, Revelation 15, 3 to 5, another judgment is coming, and it also will be just. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy? All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of, the, of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with seven plagues. In verses 4 to 7, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers, and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of, uh, in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard at the altar saying, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The good news is, if you're a recipient 
of the saving work of Christ, then that's not for you. All of their sufferings are with no end and with no purpose, except to show the justice of God. You are a recipient of the justice of God, but it is the redemptive justice of God that you have received. And God has acted righteously and justly in doing it. Let's close with prayer. Father, some of this we like and some of this we don't like. I really don't want to face any suffering. I really don't. But if, boy, I hesitate to pray this prayer. I, I, I don't want to say this. It is a valid prayer after what we've said. But I pray it with trembling. Um, do whatever is necessary to bring us home to the kingdom. And when we get there, we'll look back and see that it was all very much worthwhile. In the, mid, in the meantime, in the midst of it, as we live through hard times, uh, teach us not to doubt in those darkness days, but to trust what we've always known and always been taught. You are good and there is no end, end to your goodness. Let us re remember that uh, you sacrificed Jesus for us. And in sacrificing him for us, you have given us a hope that transcends any hope we might have on this, in this world. So keep us steadfast, always trusting in your righteousness, even when we cannot see how you're righteous. There will be times that we may face where all around us are saying, if you're really a Christian, why isn't God answering your prayers? And we will have to answer in light of tonight's verses that we've looked at. He has. He's fitting me for his kingdom. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Attributes of God with Dr. Jim Allman. If you're new to Central Church, you can check us out at centralchurch.com. You can get more information about our ministries and our classes. We hope to see you back.